I'll invite you now to stand with me and take your copy of God's word and turn to Genesis chapter 43. We will look at this entire chapter today and I am going to read just verse 14 this morning. I think verse 14 is the central verse to the entire chapter. To understand this chapter, we must understand this verse first. This is Jacob speaking to uh, his sons prior to their second journey to Egypt. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We are grateful, God, for this last year that we have walked together through the first book of the Bible, how it has instructed us. I pray, God, that that would happen today as well as we think about what does it mean to trust in a God who is merciful. As we see in this story, Jacob trusting in the mercy of God and Joseph extending the mercy of God. May we emulate that. We thank you, Father, and that you are still active in our world and speaking to us through your word. Would your Holy Spirit now do just that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Where we left off in Genesis 42, and I thank Pastor Michael for preaching in my absence last week. We saw the famine that God had revealed to Pharaoh and been interpreted in a dream through Joseph uh, come to reality. 14 years after Joseph had entered the service of Pharaoh, there was a worldwide famine, but Egypt alone was prepared. And Jacob sends his sons in chapter 42, all but Benjamin, down to Egypt to buy grain. There is an encounter between 10 brothers of Joseph and Joseph, whom they, these brothers had sold into slavery uh, years previous, who do not recognize their brother. He gives them a little bit of a hard time, uh, accusing them of being spies, taking one of them into captivity, holding him sort of as a ransom that they would ultimately bring his whole brother, the only other son of his mother, Benjamin, back to him in Egypt. And then returning all of their money to them in secret, placing it in their bags of grain. They do not discover this until they are on the road home and fear something is amiss. That was the first time that these brothers would be tested by Joseph. When we get to chapter 44 next week, we will see another test that Joseph provides here for for, uh, his brothers. But it is in chapter 43 that their second encounter takes place. It is in chapter 43 that as we have already read in verse 14, Jacob will express to his sons the need to depend upon the mercy of the Lord in their encounter with who he calls the man because they do not know that this is Joseph. And ultimately we are going to see as this story ends that Joseph extends that very mercy while in the flesh We may think this is a great opportunity for Joseph to become even with his brothers who sold him 
the favored son into slavery, into Egypt. He does not take this opportunity for revenge, but to lavish mercy. We should see it as mercy from the Lord upon his brothers. I want to quickly define some terms for us that we will use today to make sure that we're all on the same page. First, the word justice. Well, the word justice is used a lot in our society today, and truthfully, depending on its context, the meaning may shift. When we see justice in the Bible, though, particularly as it relates to uh, the Lord's justice in uh, the justice of the Lord in punishing the wicked for evil, we can think of the word justice as when we get what we deserve, that our sin deserves punishment. And the justice of the Lord, which is always right and always good, is meeting out the wrath of God upon the wicked. The word mercy, which we will focus on today in the context of scripture, is when we don't get what we deserve. We deserve the justice of the Lord. We deserve punishment for our sin, but God in his mercy will pass over certain sins. He will pass over the sins of those who have come to him in faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. This is the mercy of God when we deserve punishment and God withholds it from us. Finally is the term grace. Often grace and mercy will be used as interchangeable words, but they are not the same word. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve in a positive sense. Grace is when God gives to us that which we can never earn, that which we do not deserve. All of these relate to the salvation of souls, that the justice of God demands punishment for our sin. The mercy of God is willing to look over sin and offer us forgiveness, and the grace of God brings believers into the family of God, giving us the righteousness of Christ of which we have never earned on our own. And it is this mercy of God that we will see today. It begins with Jacob trusting in this mercy. Jacob trusts in the Lord's mercy. And this story picks up with the brothers returning there and spending at least some time. We're not told how long they have spent at the end of chapter 42 into 43, but at least it's enough time to eat all of the food that they had brought in Egypt. Look with me in verse one through, verses 1 through 10. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solely warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me 
and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we have not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So we see first here a conflict between father and son that Jacob uh, is instructing his now nine sons that are remaining to return down to Egypt and to purchase some, some additional grain. And the biblical author gives us a narrator note at the very beginning. Now the famine was severe in the land, meaning that this has lasted for some time. And what we can take from this text is they are going to die if they don't eat. That, that there is, Judah even says at the end that, that we're all going to die, us and our little ones. We're, we're all going to die if we don't go back to Egypt. So we need to have some type of arrangement. But what we've seen from Jacob is he is unwilling to send his last son. The son, the only other son other than Joseph, who he believes to be dead from his favored wife. Should he send Benjamin? He has already counted Joseph as dead. He also believes Simeon, his second-born son, who was held in captivity in Egypt, kind of as a ransom that the brothers would bring Benjamin back. He has already counted him as completely lost as well. At the end of chapter 42, Reuben has sought to make a similar deal, who was the firstborn of Jacob, with his father. You saw this last week, that, that he is, he's offered even the lives of his own children, that he would return Simeon and Benjamin back to Jacob and that offer is not taken up by Jacob because Reuben has already sinned against his father. So his pledge in the previous chapter is rejected. But here Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, makes the same offer and it is his offer that is believed by his father. He makes a pledge, you can hold me personally responsible, but Jacob, we will not go. We can't go unless Benjamin comes with us. The man will kill us. It's interesting to note in this chapter that Jacob's name, which is the Lord had changed many chapters before to Israel, is actually referred to as Israel. Often when the Lord changes someone's name in the Old Testament, the old name is never brought up again. That's not the case of Jacob. The author is intentional with the use of either the old name or the new. By using the new name Israel here in this chapter, we, our minds are intended to be drawn to the promise of God to his people. That is the undercurrent of, what, of this event. We, sh we should see this as kind of the underlying foundation, and that's going to arise later in the text as well. That the, the narrator is reminding us that this is Israel, that this is the the. the, the uh, family whom God has promised his covenant to. And so there is some negotiating back and forth here between Jacob, Israel, and his sons over will, whether they will send Benjamin and ultimately who will be responsible. But what we see from Jacob then is instructions to trust in the Lord's mercy. Ultimately, Jacob is going to be the one to come around and say, fine, it's not though that he trusts in his sons. His sons have, in the main, proven to be fairly untrustworthy. 
Two of them, along with some help from their brothers, committing genocide. Uh, Others uh, committing egregious sins against family members. And so it is not direct trust in his sons that Jacob has, but we read starting in verse 11, then the father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachios, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now there's several things, pieces of instruction that Joseph or Jacob gives to his sons before returning to meet with Joseph. And they rise in order of importance. So what, what Jacob is putting his faith in is at the end of the text. So you should see these as compounding. First, he says, take some of the things that we have in our possession that that are still growing in our land. These are balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachios, nuts, almonds, sounds a little bit like a hotel mini bar, right? Take everything that we have here in Israel and, and bring it to him as a gift. So first off, maybe we can please him with some of the things that we have. Second, take double the money. Now why take double the money? It's not that he's instructing them to go and pay twice the price, He's saying, take the money that you're going to buy the new grain with and take the old money that was in your sack that you had originally paid for the first set of grain and bring it as well. So that's what double the money is. So his, the second trust, first off, if we can't please him with gifts, we can at least return what may be thought of as stolen. So there's some logistical, practical things that Jacob is recommending his sons do. And he ultimately says in verse 12, perhaps it was an oversight. Maybe this was just an accident and y'all will be able to explain it. Then we get to verse 13, take your brother and arise and go. So more important than the the, uh, pleasures of the land, the balm, the honey, the gum, the, the nuts, the almonds, but more than that, more than the money is Benjamin, right? You can, you can see the progression here. Take these things, take the money, finally take Benjamin. He finally gets to that point where Jacob is willing to say, okay, take the last son who I've protected in my home. Take this last child that I have and take him with you to Egypt. And ultimately his trust is where? In the Lord. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. It's important to note that above the gifts, above the money, even above Benjamin himself, Jacob expresses his faith in the Lord. And the word that he uses for the name of God is important here for the text. He calls him God Almighty. In Hebrew, this is El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the name of God most often used in Genesis when God makes or keeps a covenant or promise. It is not the most common name for the Lord in Genesis. It is only used a handful of times. The first time we see it used is in Genesis chapter 17. 
The Lord appears to Abraham when he was 99 years old and identifies himself like this. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So the Lord here in Genesis 17, the first time we see El Shaddai, God Almighty, is when the Lord appears and changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham and says, I am making a covenant with you. We see it again in Genesis 35 where God appears to Jacob at Padam Aram and blesses him and says in verse 10, and God said, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. I told you the foundation of Genesis 43, the reason the narrator is using the, uh, the name Israel instead of Jacob is the covenant and promise of God to his people. And so it's not in the riches of the land that Jacob trusts. It's not in the money that he's going to return to Egypt that Jacob trusts. It's not even in the word of the man that he's sending his sons and now Benjamin too. Ultimately, where is Jacob's trust in this text? His text is in God Almighty, El Shaddai, the one who has promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that he would be their God that they would be his people, that he would make them a multitude of nations, that through them all of the nations of the world would be blessed. This is the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is why Jacob, Israel says, it is God Almighty. It is in his mercy alone that you should trust. These are the instructions that he gives to his sons. And then notice what he says at the end of that verse. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, all throughout this section of Genesis, from the time we took up the story of Abraham till now, children have been a major theme because of the nature of God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham required an heir. There must be a descendant and there was many conflicts that arose in Abraham's life surrounding, surrounding his children, ultimately leading to Isaac, who had conflicts surrounding his children, leading to Jacob, who had conflicts surrounding his children. So we see this regular theme arise. And all of this comes from the idea that the covenant is central to the text, the promise of God requires that another generation arise. And here is what Jacob is having to trust in the Lord. Are you ready for it? He's having to trust that if he sends all of his children to Egypt, that whoever that man is on the other side is not going to kill them all. You see, when he kept Benjamin at home the first time, if all of the other children had perished, at least he would have still had Benjamin. But now he's fully trusting in the Lord. 
Now he's saying what? If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now that same formula, that same word order, if you're a student of the Old Testament, should ring some, ring is familiar to you. Centuries later, there would be a, a woman in a foreign land who would say a very similar thing. Esther, now queen, is entrusted with saving all of the Jewish people who are about to be slaughtered in that land. And she says, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink three days and night. And I, am a, uh, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is what we see in both Jacob and in Esther. This willingness to say, Lord, I trust in you alone. Ultimately, this is where we see Jacob's heart as he sends his children off. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It is not his life as it was with Esther's. If I perish, I perish. But it is the promise, the descendants of the covenant. If I am bereaved of my children, if I lose them all, I am going to trust the mercy of God Almighty an intentional use of that word, the one who has promised to me, I'm going to believe in his mercy. Second, the sons of Jacob fear Joseph instead of trusting the Lord's mercy. Joseph's brothers fear him upon their arrival in Egypt. Pick up in verse 15. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. So you see, they took the, the present, the money and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. You notice that it does not say they took the present the money, Benjamin, and trusted the Lord. They just did the first three. And they went to Egypt, and their fear is going to be apparent to us. In verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, this is his brothers, they were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Their worst fears, they believe, are about to come true. They believe that Joseph is about to enslave them for being thieves. They fear Joseph. And the fact that Joseph is saying, bring them to my house, we've already, the narrator has told us this intentionally, right? Moses is writing this for us in an intentional order. So we know what Joseph is doing. Bring them to the house, I'm gonna feed them, right? Kill an animal. We're, we're about to have a big feast, but they don't know that. All they know is this is not gonna happen in the public square. This is going to happen in Joseph's house. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, uh, Wealthy, powerful Egyptians were known to have dungeons and prisons in their own homes and were able to take captives and slaves by their own authority. And there is only one person in all of Egypt more powerful than Joseph. So if there's anybody that could do this, it's, it's him and his brothers are now afraid of them. But we have to keep the whole story in mind also and recognize their fear is actually in the wrong thing. You see, they don't know that this is Joseph. They just think he's a powerful man who is in charge of the grain that is being sold in Egypt. And their fear is, of what? The money that was in their sacks the first time. That's what their fear is. 
What should their fear really be? If they knew the whole story, what should their fear really be? We sold this guy into slavery. The very thing that they're afraid will happen to them is really what they should be afraid of because they did in the first place. So, so they're afraid of something that, that is actually minuscule in comparison to what, the, if they knew it was really Joseph, what they should be afraid of. But their fear is apparent. And then driven by fear, Joseph's brothers attempt to explain themselves and prepare to meet him again. Verse 19 says, so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was an each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. So again, their fear is driving them to explain what they think the problem is. What do they think the problem is? The first time we didn't pay for our food, we intended to and we didn't. And so driven by fear, having been taken into Joseph's house, not knowing as Joseph, now they're again explaining the wrong thing. They're explaining away the fact that they had money in their sacks, thinking that that is why they were in trouble. Then in verse 23, he replied, this is the steward of Joseph, peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet. And when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. So they've, they've been restored their brother, Simeon, but also the steward of Joseph has given credit to God and said, your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sack. Now in the previous chapter, when the brothers find the sack, they actually credit God, but question him. And they said, what is this that God has done to us? They're, they're believing that God is somehow to blame for putting the money in the sack. And the, the steward who is probably, by the way, the text doesn't tell us this, but we can, I think, make this fair assumption. He is the one who put the money in the sack, doesn't take credit for it, but echoes back what they said to one another in private. God is the one who has does this, that this is all part of a plan. But there is still great fear. Here they are in this man's house, their brother restored to them, but why? And finally, we see Joseph demonstrates the Lord's mercy to his brothers. He meets with his brothers and on two occasions during this meeting, nearly reveals himself to them twice. First in verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he alive? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their head and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brothers and he sought his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. Now, Joseph encounters not only the brothers who sold him into slavery, but the one brother who didn't. 
he encounters his half-brothers and his one whole brother by the same mother, Benjamin. And on this, upon this encounter with Benjamin, Joseph is caused to become very emotional. This is the only brother who did not betray him. This is the only brother without his being sold into slavery on his hands. This is the closest brother to him in age, the brother of his mother. And he has to excuse himself from the room, almost revealing himself to his other brothers because he is overcome with compassion for Benjamin and he seeks a place to weep and to cry. We continue to read then in verse 31 that he washed his face and came out and controls himself saying, serve the food. They served him by himself. Now this is, you get a picture of this. There's gonna be three tables, all right? There's gonna be a table for Joseph. There's gonna be a table for the Egyptians present and a table for the Hebrews present. And he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by himself and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. So again, three tables because the Egyptians cannot eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright. No, and he, and they sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright and the youngest, according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. So this is the second time that Joseph almost reveals himself to his brothers because he's the one, he's the one in control, right? And he's telling everywhere to sit and he starts with the oldest brother and works his way down to the youngest brother and gets them all in order. Now, if these had been like 18 year olds and down, you probably could have done this somehow by height. But, but Joseph has been in Egypt now for decades. All of these, all of these uh, brothers are now men, even Benjamin while the youngest is already a grown man at this point, And you get to a point where it's hard to tell the age of one grown man for another. And Joseph is able to do it perfectly. And this is why we're told in the text that they were amazed. They're amazed at what he is able to do. They look at one another in amazement, almost again, giving himself away. But notice what he does at the very end. Joseph feasts with his brother and provides an excess portion for Benjamin. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from where? Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Joseph does not enslave or punish his brothers, but shares with them directly from his table. Now, it would not, it's not a stretch of the imagination, the fact that there are three tables present in this room to think that Joseph, the second most powerful person in Egypt, had the choicest of food. And, and then would have been the Egyptians, those who worked closely with Joseph at a separate table would have the next best food. And then ultimately, whatever would be left, while it would have still been nice in Joseph's house, would have been provided for the brothers. But Joseph does something here that shows his heart to his brothers. He extends mercy to them, not enslaving them, not punishing them. And he had, not only did he have ancient reason to do so, long past history reason to do so, but he could have easily accused them of stealing that money and everyone would have believed him. But no, he does not punish them but shares with them from his table and shares five times with Benjamin. Now, Benjamin would not have been able to eat five times. Everyone, this is what, the, and they drank and were merry with him. This is a feast. Everyone's gonna have plenty, but Benjamin's sitting in front of like Thanksgiving meal all in one, you know, like right, 
right there in front of him. Joseph is giving specific portion and attention to his brother Benjamin. So what? Well, th- this story of, of this disagreement at home and ultimately Jacob saying, well, we're going to trust the Lord's mercy, go. And then this unique kind of cultural encounter that we see between Joseph and, and, and now all of his brothers. What are we to do with this? What are we to take? Well, again, the, the focus is verse 14, the mercy of God Almighty. So I have two questions. The first is, do I trust in the Lord's mercy? Do, would I agree with Jacob? When I'm faced with trouble, am I saying the same thing that Jacob is saying or am I relying on the presence and the money and the, and the logistical workings of this world or am I really willing to say, Lord, God Almighty, who I have firmly believed in your promise for me, I trust in your mercy. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. If I die, I die. But I am going to trust in the mercy of the Lord. Understand something. Without trusting in the mercy of the Lord, there is no salvation. Without recognizing that God is going to withhold judgment that you deserve from you, there is no salvation. Peter writes of this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his what? Great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, whom by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I just focus on the beginning of that before I move to the second. It is by what? The great mercy of almighty God that he has caused us to be born again. You see, without the mercy of God to remove his judgment for our sins, there would be no salvation because we would never be able to earn enough right place with God for him to look upon us with favor. The same was true with Joseph's brothers. There was nothing that those boys would be able to bring from Israel and bring to Joseph to be able to undo what had been done so many decades before. And Jacob still says, trust in the Lord's mercy. And so I wonder today for you, church, for myself, am I trusting in the Lord's mercy? And do you notice what Peter connects there with salvation? He connects various trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, trusting in the mercy of the Lord isn't only unto salvation. Trusting in the mercy of the Lord is to follow the example that we see from Jacob. Trusting in the mercy of the Lord is to say, now, today, in this matter that I face in my life, I am going to believe that God is good. In the Old Testament book of Lamentation, chapter three, we read the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Hear me today. The mercy of the Lord is renewed towards us every day. No matter what you face, no matter what you have done, you can wholeheartedly trust in God to be merciful towards you because he is a God of exceeding mercy. 
His steadfast love never ceases. And no matter what you face today, if God gives you another day, when you wake up tomorrow, his mercies will be renewed for you. They are new every morning because he is a merciful God. With that hope in our hearts, I ask the second question. Do I demonstrate the Lord's mercy? Here's what I believe. I believe most, not all, but I believe most people in this room affirm this. When I say, do I trust in the Lord's mercy? The Lord is merciful to you in forgiving your sins and not giving you his wrath and punishment for your sins. Your heart rejoices and you say, yes, I believe that. Can I tell you what I think is probably a more difficult question for? Do we actually demonstrate the Lord's mercy? We live in a day, let's just be honest about our own culture for a moment. We live in a culture that does not value mercy. It does not. We live in a culture that values vengeance, that values settling the score and getting even. If we were to write this same story in today's language, Joseph would reveal himself to his brothers and punish them and we would sit in a movie theater and cheer. Because finally, he was able to get even with his evil brothers. So I think this is a more difficult question for us. I believe the Lord is merciful to me but am I really called to be merciful to those who would sell me into slavery? Am I really called to be merciful to those who would seek to persecute me, who would seek to be my enemy, who would seek evil to come upon me? Am I really called to be merciful to them? Yes. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter six. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Notice this, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now notice this, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Christian, the standard for mercy that we are to show in this world is the standard that God alone has set. And there is no second category. We don't get to compartmentalize our lives and say, I'm going to be merciful sometimes. This is what Jesus is warning about. I'm gonna be merciful to people who are merciful to me. I'm gonna be merciful to people who love me. I'm gonna be merciful to people who've shown kindness to me. But I'm going to root for utter vengeance against others. Jesus eliminates that compartmentalization in our lives and says, no, God, who was merciful to you as you were dead in your trespasses and sin, God, who was merciful to you in in your egregious sin against him, 
He is merciful, so you shall be merciful as well. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. And then notice what Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is part of the Beatitudes, and often we want to read the Beatitudes wrongly. We want to think, well, because we show mercy, what Jesus is saying is because we show mercy, then we get mercy. But we're actually supposed to kind of read the Beatitudes upside. The whole thing of the Sermon on the Mount is this kingdom ethic. It's kind of this upside-down way of viewing things. And here's what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes as it relates to mercy. People who have received the mercy of God are going to, by their new nature, show mercy the mercy of God. Jesus is providing a test for us, a test that we ought to be able to look into our lives and say, have I truly received the mercy of God? Because if I have, then there should be evidence of my life of me being merciful to others. While our culture may not applaud and think the story of Joseph here and forgiving his brothers and and heaping these kind of portions upon them, he's still not revealed himself to them. We'll get to that. Well, we, our culture may not embrace that because we're a culture of vengeance, not of mercy. Hear me something. Hear me clearly, church. We should be. The church of God should be known as the most merciful worldly entity on the face of the planet. This should be the place that people come to find mercy. This should be the place that people could come to experience forgiveness. This should be the place that people should come to see the love of God because we are the ones who have found it. We are the ones who know it. We are the ones whose his mercy is renewed for every day. So church, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. And if you have never found the mercy of God, know this. It's offered to you freely in Jesus Christ today that if you will believe and repent of your sins, you can come to him and you will find great mercy in our God. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for such a great mercy that is extended to us. Help us to extend your mercy to the world. Let us proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who have not yet heard it, to those who have not yet believed it, so that they too can know of your great mercy. But also, God, Let us show mercy to our enemies. Let us show mercy to our persecutor. Let us show mercy to those who would oppose your gospel, that they would see the mercy of God through the acts of his children. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.